Welcome to MoneyMD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. John, we're getting into my favorite part of the year yeah. here. And it's just, I walked outside this morning and it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a cooler breeze coming in, you know? Not and as sticky. Not as sticky. The humidity's dropped a little bit. And uh, yeah, I was just, it was just kind of, you could kind of feel that football was in the air. Yes, it is. It's it right. It is. Yeah. Like, it's happening. I mean, there's games this week, but I, I'm sure you watched the playoff at the BMW oh, um, it, it golf in, tournament. It was incredible. Yeah. The, uh, the, <clears throat> yeah, the, the FedEx playoffs, um, you know, DeChambeau and uh, that, Cantlay. that, that last, yeah, Patrick Cantlay. That showdown they had on Sunday was unbelievable, and then they had a six-hole playoff. Um, yeah, that was incredible. Tammy does not like watching golf, but she sat there with me for, I don't know how long it was, 45 minutes additional playing, and, and we yeah. were both just fascinated because they were going back toe-to-toe with each other. It was truly impressive. That was some of the best impressive. golf I've ever seen, even on TV. Yeah. Um, you know, that even rivals, you know, what Tiger you did in his. Yep. I mean, just that, that, that particular match. And hopefully um, the game, the football game, so Clemson and Georgia play. Yeah, that's a big one, man. Yeah. We'll see right out of the gate what we got. So I tell you, Carolina's playing a, a very. Uh, it should be an easy win. So we're going to start off undefeated, and and one of Georgia or Clemson is going to be one loss. You know, be a one so loss we'll, right out of the gate. That's yeah, right. It's yeah. going to be a good weekend for football. It's going to nice be a fun weather. weekend. Fun weekend. Weather's going to be a little cooler. So yeah. hey, enjoy it out there. That's you know. Right. And speaking of enjoying it, I mean, we got some pretty interesting topics to talk about here. Um, you know, we're going to start off, John, we have an income, the income strategies in retirement. You know, it's one of those age-old questions of how do you create income in retirement? And there are a lot of different ways to do it. Well, now there's a new, there's a new strategy that's come out here recently um, that we're going to talk about. And uh, it's a little different. And so, you know, we're going to bounce that off of some others and, and just uh, talk about it because it's a very important question in retirement. Yeah, and then we're going to switch uh, topics a little bit and uh, look at uh, financial issues for married people. Um, there are ten things that you want to look at. Um, you know, when you're when you're married, and one person's likely going to pass away before the other one, unless you're unfortunately in a some type of car wreck or something like that. So there's things that you need to plan on, make sure you understand a little bit. Social Security will will dive into the details, but there are ten things that you want to make sure that you understand um, in case your spouse does pass away that does impact you financially. Yeah, that's a that's an important topic. So you certainly want to pay attention to that. By the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro with over 26 years experience in financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey certified counselor. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 29 years. We're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, check out our website, moneymd.net. We have uh, the podcast. You can certainly link there and listen to it from your computer. You can download the uh, app and, and get us on a weekly basis. Also have a lot of tools out there. Um, if you haven't checked out the website, go look at it. Some good videos, also uh, some budgeting uh, tools, some calculators and so forth. And uh, have a Facebook page, MoneyMD, that we put a uh, prescription of the week out every week. And you can link to us there on the website. We'd love to have your questions, and we will talk about those right here on the show. Well, John, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this is uh, from the DOE. And, and Steve, there are about 43,000 uh, electric uh, vehicle charging stations in the U.S., 
And um, you know, to put that in perspective, there's over a million vehicles on the road that are that are electric. So you know yeah. that that infrastructure is being built out. But the the new um, uh, infrastructure bill um, that passed by the Senate allocates over seven billion dollars for additional charging stations. So I would imagine, gosh, in the next five to ten to twenty years, I mean, the number of electric vehicles is going to swamp oh, the yeah. number of gas powered. You it's know. gonna happen, yeah. I mean, as as you know, I drive an electric vehicle, and um, you know, when you go on a trip, um, you know, it is something you have to think about. Um, fortunately, you don't have to think about it locally because you just charge it at home, and it's full every morning when yeah. you hop in it. But um, but yeah, whenever you're on a trip, you you definitely have plan to plan out. today. And I think you know, once they implement this and start adding all these stations, it'll be like finding a gas station will be all on every yeah every exit so um yeah that'll be great that's, do they have them at welcome centers uh not yet not yet okay. i haven't never seen okay. a charging yeah, station at welcome know. center but usually the hotels they're they're yeah. you know around hotels right. the superchargers are located about every hundred miles on the interstate so you definitely can go where you want to go but it takes some planning yep. you know ahead of time to uh to do that so uh interesting fact of the week all right and that leads us up here to our first topic and that is income strategies in retirement um yeah, this is a very recent article out of Market Watch by Robert Powell. And, um, but, John, when it comes to retirement, you know, there's this age-old question of how to create income um, that you need in retirement from your investments and then make it last your entire life. And over the years, I mean, there have been a lot of different theories surrounding that question. And, you know, there have been some very creative ideas about how to structure your investments and your income to accomplish that goal to make it last. Um, and one area of focus, though, around this question is about your portfolio. You know, should it be structured to sustain growth or only create income? Um, and they call that kind of a wealth-focused or an income-focused portfolio. Um, but then another question related to this is what's the best spending strategy? You know, um, should you... Should it be kind of a fixed spending strategy, similar to the infamous 4% rule, mm-hmm. you know, about withdrawing 4%? It goes all the way back to 1994. Um, or a flexible spending strategy or some other strategy involved in it. There's a lot of different strategies. Very important, though, that you have a plan for how you're going to create income in your portfolio. And we're going to talk about a new one that's come out here, but but there are, it conflicts with other well-established rules so you know there's some there's some give and take here something to be learned from this though so it's interesting nonetheless yeah definitely different ways of doing this and uh, there's a gentleman that works at uh, he's a senior researcher at uh, dimensional fund advisors dfa and that's actually who we have partnered with from a mutual fund company standpoint and uh, they've done some research and his research paper was just in, uh, uh, put published out in a um, investing for retirement income uh, uh, group and um, for those headed into retirement as well as those already retired one of the interesting things this gentleman found was um, an income focused portfolio and that's one that was invested uh, only 25% in stocks and uh, had the rest in inflation protected bonds um, delivered similar retirement income as the wealth focused portfolio which is more in stocks uh, and it offered you know good protection against market interest rate and inflation risk now as we were talking about, bonds have had a, a heck of a you know thirty forty year run based on interest rates dropping. So they have. you know you gotta you gotta you know 
make sure this is put in perspective, but it is a different uh, research that we haven't seen before. Yeah, it's a totally different approach. And, uh, you know, so before, yeah, before you go jump to the conclusion that this is the answer and make some huge changes to your portfolio, you got to recognize this strategy does have some significant limitations that we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, but, of course, it is interesting to find that, you know, income at low volatility, if that's your only goal, then you may not have to invest all your assets or a big chunk of your assets in stocks to to generate that desired income. Um, you can do it, apparently, you know, if this worked, you could do it by investing in bonds and only 25% stocks, according to to Perrin, Perrin, <coughs> yep. is his last name. Um, but, you know, he didn't come to that conclusion um, easily. I mean, he went. He looked at different combinations of three investment strategies, four different spending strategies. And in his study, he explains that, he well, he examined two wealth-focused investment strategies, one of them with an allocation of 50% stocks and 50% bonds, and one where there was 25% stocks and 75% bonds. Um, and then he, he there was an income focus strategy that where it was only 25% in stocks and the remainder was in these inflation indexed bonds. And, you know, by way of background, I mean, index an inflate, excuse me, an income focused strategy seeks to reduce the volatility of retirement income rather than focus on the volatility of the assets um, as the investor approaches retirement. So it's, you know, geared toward very low volatility. And then he also, you know, looked at four different spending strategies. It was a fixed spending strategy similar to the 4% rule that we talked about. Uh, there was a flexible spending strategy where you can, you know, adjust how much you're spending based on the market and the economy. And then there was kind of a, a an annuity strategy where it's fixed amount of money every single year. Um, and then an inflation indexed annuity strategy where it was a fixed amount that goes up with inflation every year. So there were like four different strategies he, he looked at here. But, um, yeah, I mean, he did some pretty in-depth research for this. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that we look at, certainly, and he also measured as well, is what is the risk of running out of assets before death uh, using these different investment strategies? And that's just one of the uh, the outputs, if you will. And so for the fixed spending strategy, um, you know, the, the one that holds a large amount of inflation-protected bonds, it had the lowest failure rate, 20% versus 28% for the wealth-focused portfolio. Um, and it was 30% failure rate for a wealth-focused uh, uh, portfolio that had more in stock, about 50%. So um, it, it did really well, um, you know, based on the, I don't know what the time frame of this was that he used, but uh, it had a 20% um, failure rate, and it was a little bit lower than the other two. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, for the flexible spending where the retiree is changing how much they spend in retirement every year based on the account balance and the markets, um, the income-focused allocation also outperformed the moderate growth, wealth-focused uh, portfolio on all measures, despite having a similar exposure to stocks. Um, and if you had to choose, you know, between the two different spending strategies, the flexible spending approach would generally have better outcomes than a fixed spending approach um, because, you know, you're you're using more information over the course of retirement to make changes. And I think this is one key takeaway here. You know, um, 
despite, you know, his finding, I mean, if you add some flexibility to your spending plan, you're going to have better results um, throughout retirement, regardless of which investment strategy you employ, because, you know, flexibility just improves the results because you're not taking out as much when markets are down. Mm-hmm. Um, he did find, however, that the growth wealth focused uh, portfolio, the 50% stock, 50% bonds offered the highest average income in retirement, but it, it, it did so at higher volatility. Mm-hmm. You know, there's more risk, obviously. So, you know, before you go throw away the idea of having a significant allocation of stocks, recognize that this is a key, you know, which allows you to maintain a higher level of income in retirement, having, you know, a significant chunk in stocks. Um, However, you know, by contrast, I mean, he discovered that having, you know, this higher stock exposure in retirement is an inadequate tool to manage the longevity risk of, you know, the risk of running out of money. Um, the research didn't doesn't suggest completely avoiding stocks. Um, you know, the big message is really about having the right equity, the right stock exposure at the right time, he says. So, you know, for instance, if you're young and you, you're in, in growth of assets is important to you, then um, you certainly have more capacity for bearing risk and a high exposure uh, to stocks certainly makes sense, as yeah. you put it. Yeah, and as you transition towards retirement, I mean, we see most people, they want to have, you know, less less risk, um, certainly more, uh, more moderate stock exposure, and they're going to need income. And so that's one of the, really the key findings of the report is the trade-off is not that steep in terms of returns, and you have much tighter risk control around your goals. So, so basically having, you know, high exposure to stocks early in life, we certainly recommend people, um, you know, having, you know, 100% if you're in your 20s, and certainly making sure that you have that risk uh, return trade off as you uh, as you get into retirement. And to be fair, there doesn't seem to be much agreement among other researchers regarding the right asset allocation for retirement, nor the correct spending strategy for that matter. There's no consensus best practice. So, you know, there's there's pros and cons to each each strategy. And there's a lot of strategies out there. Yeah, there is. I mean, on one end of the spectrum, you know, some researchers have said that a high allocation of stocks is still a better approach. You know, in in 2013, the professor at um, American College of Financial Services and Michael uh, Kitsis, um, you know, who who publishes the Kitsis report, he argued um, that a rising equity glide path in retirement um, actually gave you better results where the portfolio starts out conservative but come becomes more aggressive throughout retirement in that time horizon if you remember that mm-hmm. you know that was issued maybe eight years ago this, this study and it had the potential to actually reduce both the probability of failure and the magnitude of the failure for clients portfolios um, and that's a totally opposite approach to this new research yeah. that we're looking at today you know, on the other end of the spectrum, there was at least one researcher that argued um, the extreme conservative case. In 2011, um, this uh, uh, Dr. Harlow, I believe, is a then research director at Putnam Institute, argued in his research that the appropriate range of equity allocation in retirement was between 5 and 25% stocks. So very conservative. Um, and that's if the primary goal is not to outlive your assets. Um, you know, so that's more similar to these findings that, that this guy's finding out 
uh, releasing now. Um, however, you know, one has to wonder, John, I mean, if the, if the gradual decline in interest rates over the last 40 years makes these more conservative strategies look better than they really should be over time. Yeah. You know, I mean, can we really expect, you know, bonds to ever return 6 to 8% per year again for any significant time going forward? I, I, I don't see how. I don't see it. Yeah, I don't see it. Yeah. So, and that's what, but that's what we've experienced at you know some significant periods over the last sure. forty years. Yeah, and that that certainly uh, you know weighs the the bond exposure uh, heavily. And um, you know the the question is 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 really what what is the best investment strategy or spending strategy? Is it this twenty five percent allocation with uh, with inflation protected bonds, or is it the bucket approach, or is it the total runner uh, return approach? Um, you know, there, there's no easy answer. There's, there's plenty of, uh, strategies, um, you know, and, um, you know, everybody's going to say their strategy is the best, but you're know, looking back at, at research and, um, you know, assumptions and so forth, you got to make sure that you get a, an allocation, you understand the process. And I know you're going to kind of talk about this as we close, but, uh, making sure you have what we believe having some allocation to both buckets, the conservative and the, the growth is, is, uh, has worked well historically. Yeah, it has. I wouldn't jump on, you know, new, new strategies like this. I mean, their strat this strategy, you know, looks really good on paper, I think. And, um, you know, and it might make sense for some people, but it, it, uh, I think it comes with some risk that bonds significantly underperform over the next 10 years, you know, and it makes uh, less sense for those who are concerned about the volatility, who are less concerned about volatility, uh, you know, in retirement and more concerned about growing their their portfolio to keep up with their inflation, you know, in the future. Um, so, I mean, the only strategy that's consistently proven to help with your survival in retirement is having some flexibility about when and how much you draw withdraw money. Um, you know, other than that, I mean, it's debatable which of these strategies will give you the best overall results over time. Of course, it always depends heavily on your assumptions about the future. Um, we would probably encourage you to stick to a balanced portfolio approach with at least 50 percent, you know, or more in stocks um, while maintaining, you know, some flexibility about how much you take out each year. Um, but regardless, you know, I mean, these new strategies do give you some interesting things to think about when it comes to creating income and retirement. So it's always good to look at these and kind of know what's out there. But having said that, I would stick with the tried and true strategy that you're probably implementing already in your portfolio. But um, yeah, good, good research. And like food, you said, it's, it's good to understand what's out there. Definitely food for thought. All right. And that leads us up here to the question of the week. The question has to do with loaning money um, to this individual's son for a down payment on his house. Is this a good idea, and what pitfalls should I consider? Well, you know, anytime you have money and family, um, if it is, um, I would say if it's formalized, um, you know, there's a contract, there's a written agreement, um, that can work. Um, sure. But sometimes just, you know, depends on how much you're talking about, but sometimes giving or gifting is a, is a, is a good way to do it. Um, it. It's a slippery slope because there are a lot of people, if, you, if, the, if the son doesn't pay that back, yeah. Um, you know, it creates tension and uh, you can ruin a relationship over money and that's not worth it. Yeah, that's certainly I mean, Dave Ramsey, you know, speaks highly against this, as does most um, most professionals, because, I mean, you know, when you look at that, you know, I think back over my 26 years, I mean, 
most of those haven't turned out very well when I see parents yeah. loaning money to the kids. I think you need to be prepared to turn it into a gift. Um, you know, I mean, because the natural tendency is for them not to take it very seriously when it comes to repaying it on time. And it's hard to set up scheduled payments, you know, that are timely. Um, you know, so it, it, they, they could have bad credit because they probably went to the bank first. They wouldn't come to you unless they'd already tried other options, most likely. So, you know, and like you said, you're going to strain a relationship if things turn south and, and you're not prepared to turn this into a gift. So I would stay away from that if at all possible. Every, of course, we all want to help our kids, you know, and, and uh, you know, I mean, who wouldn't do what you can for your kids? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, be careful. just be careful. Yeah. <laughs> it's something you want to tread very carefully into in terms of loaning money to family. Um, but great question of the week. And that leads us up here to our next topic. And that is, um, you know, what? Basically, what? What do you do if um, one of your spouse, one of the spouses, dies earlier? Um, yeah. How do you prepare for that? Yeah. So there's ten ten important financial issues for married people, and I mean the reality is, well, you know, one spouse, um, you know, when your partner, somebody's going to outlive the other. I mean, unless you're Most killed in a likely. car wreck. Yeah. So. So you got to plan. You got to understand some of the major issues, some of the financial implications, and there are some. And the first one that really jumps out is Social Security. So for a married couple, um, their Social Security benefits um, can consist of two workers' benefits, um, or it can be a workers' benefit and a spousal benefit. And um, on the death of either spouse, the remaining benefit is the higher of the two. So as an example, if one worker had a two thousand a month benefit and the spouse had a thousand. Uh, as the um, spousal benefit, then then they would get the higher of the two. So, yep. you know, it's just something you have to plan on. That, and that kind of works into Social Security strategies as well. But, you know, Social Security will be cut, but you'll get the higher of the two. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and the question is, what if the surviving spouse isn't 62 yet, which is usually the earliest age which you can draw your own retirement benefits um, you know, there's the possibility of claiming the spousal benefit as early as age 60. Um, and the surviving spouse gets to choose to either collect their survivor benefits at age 60 or his or her own benefit as early as age 62. Um, but um, here's the thing, you know, with, for a survivor, you have a nice option to take either one of those and delay the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a really nice benefit that you want to take advantage of if you can. Um, so if you have your own benefit that's going to grow to be more than your survivor benefit, you could draw the survivor benefit now and let the, your own benefit grow, um, uh, you know, before 66 or 67, and you could delay yours all the way to age 70. Or vice versa, you could take your own benefit at 62, and you could let the survivor benefit grow to the larger number um, at, you know, full retirement or even uh, all the way up to 70, I believe. So, yeah, I mean, you have some options there. You definitely want to be very careful about that. Take advantage of that because it's a very unique benefit that's given only to survivors. Yes, so Social Security will will definitely be impacted by the the death of a a spouse. The second one that will be impacted is the, uh, the pension or if you have an income annuity, um, when you when you get a pension, you you typically select single life, which means it's just on you. Um, but we recommend for most people joint and survivor, so the survivor gets some portion of that. You can be fifty percent; it can be all the way up to a hundred percent as well. So when a spouse passes, they have a a pension that's potentially going to change your income. You just want to understand what that looks like, and and certainly on the front end of this. 
you want to make sure that you choose the right um, option that's going to protect your spouse if you if you did pass away. So the pension and income annuity, you know, kind of similar. Um, you got to make sure you understand that uh, that option, that pension option that you get. So uh, the next one here is uh, life insurance. That's yeah, yeah, life insurance. I mean, most you know financial planners often say life insurance isn't necessary. Um, you know, once the children aren't home and um, once the couple's retired. And that's that's usually what we recommend too. You know, you don't need life insurance once you're retired. Hopefully, you've saved well and you have a nice 401k or you know other other assets to fall back on. But some retirees do opt to keep their their insurance so that they have a pool of tax-free assets to back up their pension or their annuity choices. Um, you know, if they pass away, um, you know, for instance, if one spouse with a pension might choose a higher life-only payout and then. Um, single life payout, and then hedge that risk by purchasing life insurance on its own life. Um, and then if the other spouse dies first, you know, that that point the spouse could could drop the life insurance. So, um, yeah, it's something to consider, life insurance. Um, but, you know, if you have substantial assets, I think you don't need that yeah. past retirement. Yeah, another difference that, that you're going to experience is the tax rate differences. So on the you know, it's the same taxable income. Married couples are taxed less severely than single taxpayers. Uh, the standard deduction also for, for married couples is double. Uh, so really the takeaway is, is if one spouse dies and the household income remains similar, uh, this can be a much higher tax bill um, ba- based on the tax brackets for a single filer. So something to be aware of. Another one is Medicare. Um, you know, Medicare premiums are based on your income. So if your income doesn't change very much uh, in 2021, um, you know, if you're, if you're over 176000 um, for a married couple, then it's a certain rate. But that drops down to 88000 for single individuals. So again, depending on all these, how these incomes stack up, you could have a significantly higher uh, Medicare cost, and you just need to work that into the budget. Yeah, that that higher premium for Medicare um, with the surcharges, it can range from eight hundred and sixty dollars per year up to fifty five hundred dollars a year in combined extra premiums for Medicare Part B and Part D. If the surviving spouse is left with some large lump sum, you know, in a in a traditional retirement account, or is taking RMDs um, on their their pension, other their four hundred and one k. So you know that's something to be very aware of. Um, good news though, if you if withdrawals from Roth accounts aren't included in that calculation, so it's just taxable income. Yeah, and another uh, item here on the list is IRAs. So if you're the beneficiary of the um, IRA, then it's just going to roll into your IRA. So uh, the only issue that you might you know run across if your spouse is younger than fifty nine and a half, then um, there's some different strategies built into that, but uh, not not too many uh, gotchas in that one. Roth conversions, Steve, is a big one. You know, if you're doing Roth conversions um, because the tax brackets are are higher for married couples, it's probably better to do it when when you're married versus when you're uh, uh, you know filing individually because the tax brackets are so lower. So just got to look at the Roth conversions. We do a lot of those for people right now um, because um, tax rates are historically low. Right. And they could go up. (laughs) Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I mean, health savings accounts, another one that you want to pay attention to. If the spouse is named as a beneficiary of a health savings account, he or she can continue that benefit um, from the account tax free, you know, tax free growth. um, And uh, 
you know, that isn't true for non-spouse beneficiaries. So um, instead, for non-spouse beneficiaries, account immediately becomes fully taxable at the death of the owner. So you don't want to leave that beyond the first spouse. So you want to make sure you use your HSA account, um, you know, for yep. medical purposes. Save those receipts. You can always reclaim it later out of the, reimburse yourself out of the account once the account has been opened. Yeah, and the last one to just be aware of is there's something called a stepped-up basis. And uh, upon the death of a spouse, the assets held in the deceased name get a stepped-up in cost basis, basically taking away all the capital gains if the assets are held jointly, then there's a stepped-up basis in half the assets, uh, unless it's a community property state, um, in which case all jointly owned assets may receive the uh, stepped-up basis. So just got to understand that piece of it can certainly impact your, your taxes. Um, so, you know, Steve, it's kind of a, as I was reading this article, it's like, wow, you know, Tammy, one of us is going to pass away before the other one. And, uh, yeah. you know, you got to plan on it. You just don't know when um, we had a... A spouse pass away this last week unexpectedly of a client and uh, you just you just never know so just gotta do some know. prep yeah exactly it would be it's really good idea to to sit down list all your assets out make sure you have a nice inventory asset list yep. we talk about occasionally and but then also look at what's going to happen to all the different things and you know what are you going to what decisions would you make if that unfortunate event happens so um Good discussion. All right. And that leads us up here to our last item, and that is the prescription of the week. So uh, we, we do the Facebook post, Steve, like we talked about uh, or talk about every yep. every uh, show. And uh, um, Sarah Hensley is going to be doing that, and she's our nerdy free spirit, so it'll be entertaining. And um, so uh, basically her what she's going to be talking about is never too early to teach someone how to create a budget. So she has teenagers in yep. the house, and she has a little uh, worksheet um, that she is going to probably work up on the – on the video, but it is child. It's a child expense organizer, and it has a little some budgeted amounts and reminders and important dates. And you're just starting to teach them some responsibility. So, I think it's a great idea, particularly as they get into you know yes. the teen years. They're starting to understand a little bit more. Um, but sit down and talk with them and, and help them through um, the issues. It will. It does make a difference um, when they get in their twenties and they've had some experience in this so that's a great uh, prescription yeah i think so too i mean it's never too early as soon as they start getting an allowance or start making some kind of money doing chores around the house i think having some really simple budget for them just so that they they can kind of get that ingrained that you got to allocate your money when it comes in yeah. and you know start that early and then you know it'll probably stick with them later on in life when they get older so um just just start those habits super early with kids. You know, it could be simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. And uh, just get them in the habit of thinking about money in a different way by having a budget. So great prescription of the week. All right, and that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Um, send us your questions. You can link to us there on the website or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor.